the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Your home for up-to-the-minute market updates. This is Business 1440. KYCR, Golden Valley, a service of Salem Media Group. With SRN News, I'm Bob Agnew in Washington. China has reported 2,641 new virus cases as it escalates measures to try and control the outbreak in its own country and reassure other countries around the world it's doing all it can to fight the outbreak and also stop the possible deaths as a result. The U.S. Embassy in Japan says Americans on board a quarantine ship will be flown back home on a chartered flight tomorrow. Of the 1,500 or so passengers... Over 600 are American citizens. Speaking to reporters after visiting passengers still on board the MS Westerdam cruise ship, U.S. Ambassador to Cambodia, Patrick Murphy, praised that country for allowing cruise ship to dock after being turned away by other Asian and Pacific governments. On Wall Street Friday, the Dow lost 25 points and opens up next week at 29938 This is SRN You want your child to succeed at every level in life. To succeed, they need a solid foundation. At TwinCitiesTuitions.com, we help your child get into a private Christian school for 50% off their first year. Visit TwinCitiesTuitions.com. Are you ready to make some improvements to your home? Maybe plush new carpeting or beautiful wood flooring? How about worry-free, waterproof, luxury vinyl plank flooring in your bathroom or basement? They even have a huge variety of affordable kitchen cabinets and countertops to choose from. When you're ready to start looking, Serenity Home Interiors can help. With their spacious 4,000-square-foot Burnsville showroom, they have thousands of combinations to match your dreams and your budget. Plus, the friendly professionals at Serenity Home Interiors are here to help you every step of the way. Serenity was founded on providing you with name brands you can trust, service you deserve, and pricing you can afford. So whether you need full-service interior design, a new floor installed, or you're a do-it-yourselfer and just want to purchase what you need at a great price, Serenity Home Interiors has you covered. Call today for a free no-pressure, no-obligation in-home consultation and estimate at 952-303-4033 or visit shi-mn.com. 2020 is the year your business is going to thrive. Or will it? Resolve to use digital marketing to your advantage with the help from the pros at Salem Surround. We give you all the right tools to surround your target audience and turn website visitors into website leads. Contact Salem Surround for a free evaluation of your digital presence and learn how to get your advertising message in front of today's consumers. Learn more at surroundmsp.com. Connecting you with new customers. We know you're going to love that brisket, 2141 Cliff Road in Egan and at RackShackBarbecue.com. That's RackShackBarbecue.com. Get that Rack Shack attack, Rack Shack Barbecue, oh, 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 yeah. The views expressed on the following program do not necessarily represent those of this station or its management. The Wall Street Business Network is on the air. I'm excited. This economy is on fire. It's the King Banyan Show. Let me emphasize that correlation is not causation. As an educator and former legislator, Professor Banyan steps out of the classroom and onto the airwaves to break down the local and national economic news that matters to you. Unemployment is low because everyone has two jobs. Please bring on the recession. It's the King Banyan Show on Business 1440. Now, here's King Banyan. Well, welcome back, King Banyan Show, second hour of the show. That trivia thing that's going on in the building right now, they were making chocolate chip cookies for all the volunteers an hour ago. I walked out for a moment. Bacon. They're killing me up here. Thank goodness I'm chained to my desk because the temptation of bacon is very, very strong for me. But I'll tell you what's chaining me to my desk is an opportunity to talk to our next guest. Uh, is um, is Jason Crawford, a, a 
I believe, an, an engineer by training, Jason, am I correct? Uh, yeah, my background is in software engineering. Okay, great. And uh, and formerly uh, ran ran a uh, was a CEO and co-founder of a company called Fieldbook, but he has now moved on to spend, according to a blog post at rootsofprogress.org, uh, has has gone forward to write a blog that is uh, uh, that is that's now his full time job. So you're a full time blogger? No, what that that can't be exactly what you're doing, is it? Oh, pretty much, yeah. Yeah? <laughs> um, yeah. Wow! The Roots of Progress is a blog about the history of technology and industry, and it's what I spend uh, most of my time on these days. Great. And so, and so you're in this field that I think is being supported by a number of economists and uh, political scientists that fascinates me. Uh, my, my, one of my great regrets in being a, a dean is that I don't get to spend nearly as much time on research as I wish I could. But... Um, but uh, it's called progress studies, and and Jason, could you give a definition of what progress studies are? Yeah, sure. Progress studies is a, a relatively new term. It was coined last summer. Uh, there was an article that came out in the Atlantic uh, titled "We Need a New Science of Progress," and that article was uh, co-authored by an academic economist and a uh, Silicon Valley tech founder. Uh, the economist was Tyler Cowen, who's at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. And the, uh, the other, his co-author was uh, someone named Patrick Collison, who's uh, co-founder of a very successful um, tech company called Stripe. And so uh, the two of them basically said that, you know, this, um, this notion of human progress and, you know, they, they were focusing mostly, I would say, on technological and industrial progress, economic progress. Although, um, you know, some, when, when we talk about it, when I talk about it, certainly I'm speaking even more broadly than that. Uh, but, you know, this that progress, they were saying, is uh, sort of understudied and underappreciated. That, not that it's completely unstudied, but that more, uh, it should be receiving more attention and there should be more attention paid to, uh, the, you know, the study that is going on now. So I, I think of progress studies not necessarily as a new field per se, because, of course, we already have history, we have economics, um, we have philosophy of science and so forth. Um, but I see it as a you know, a certain set of uh, maybe values and premises about what's important to pay attention to and to study in those fields. Um, and so what, what Cowan and Collison called for, I would say, is something maybe uh, more interdisciplinary than what we have today, and also something a little more uh, prescriptive. So not just descriptive saying, you know, what has happened or, or how does the economy work, but prescriptive in the sense of telling us what to do, uh, sort of as medicine is to biology, um, telling us how to actually fix our problems and how to, you know, make more and better progress, how to accelerate it for the benefit of everybody. So, so Jason Crawford, one of the things that your most recent uh, post at the top of your blog right now, for example, uh, talks, talks about, uh, about how, about how sanitation may be a bigger explanation for the decline in disease and the decline of death from disease than uh, vaccines, which struck me as very interesting. By the time I finished the essay, I'm like, that seems like a really good case, um, particularly given right now with everyone sort of swept up in discussion about coronavirus. You seem to have a different take on this than than the, and maybe uh, maybe you have a different uh, prescription than uh, the prescription of a new uh, batch of antivirals. Oh yeah. Well, let's see. So first off, um, you know, I'm not a I'm not a health expert, and definitely wouldn't want to comment on coronavirus. Correct. Neither but, neither know, of us are. Everybody, everybody, wash your hands. <laughs> um, no, but, but that's the uh, story, yeah. right? Everybody, wash your hands. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, that's a that's a simple, effective thing that everybody can do. Certainly. Um, what I found, you know, so what that blog post was about was I was uh, I have been researching the ways that we effectively in the West, at least, conquered infectious disease. Um, it is not nearly, you know, it used to be by far the leading cause of death, um, especially uh, diseases like tuberculosis, influenza, pneumonia, um, uh, gastroenteric diseases like dysentery. These things uh, were huge, huge killers. And today they have been vastly reduced uh, to, to the benefit of all. And uh, so I, I, I was digging into, you know, what is, there are many ways to combat disease. We have antibiotics. We have vaccines. Uh, there's, uh, you know, hygienic practices like hand washing. There's uh, public health measures like sanita water sanitation, you know, better um, sewage, uh, chlorination of water, and so forth. And so I wanted to dig into, well, can we 
somehow by the numbers uh, figure out which of these were most important or most effective. Um, and I assumed, of course, that antibiotics and vaccines would take the, uh, you know, sort of take first place because these are, you know, extremely effective techniques. Um, and they feature and they and they're both uh, effective against a wide variety of diseases. Right. Um, and what I found looking into it was, you know, the, 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 the thing is that uh, vaccines and antibiotics were both neither of them were really in widespread use before about the 1930s, late 1930s. And if you look at the mortality statistics, it turns out that uh, mortality rates uh, had actually, from infectious disease had actually been steadily declining decade after decade for a long time uh, before that point. So something uh, had to be, be causing it. And when I dug into it, the, uh, the most uh, plausible hypothesis that I found, yes, I was, broadly oh, speaking, was sanitation. Okay. And... And uh, so there were a number of different efforts, uh, ways to control insect populations, ways to uh, uh, better sewage and uh, water treatment, chlorination of water, uh, pasteurization of milk, and just general uh, hygienic practices like, you know, spreading, sort of washing of hands or, um, you know, how to, how to quarantine yourself when you're sick. Uh, and, and these things seem to have had a huge, huge effect. Um, one thing I do want to make really clear, though, is this does not at all mean that antibiotics and vaccines are sort of, like, not important. Uh, they're both extremely effective technologies. Um, they just sort of, historically, they came along relatively late in the game. They're advanced technologies. They weren't invented until the mid-19th century. And by that point, you know, we'd, had, we'd already done a lot of good uh, through, through other sort of less sophisticated techniques. Right. I just tweeted out the the piece to uh, to this at Pound KBRS, and we're visiting with Jason Crawford from Roots of Progress blog, rootsofprogress.org. I also just tweeted, I did not realize there was something called Global Handwashing Day until I was preparing for this, <laughs> this interview. And I tweeted that as well, and the history of handwashing turns out to be quite, com- quite uh, interesting because there are doctors who were kind of, they only discovered it in the 19th century that handwashing was important, right? And... Uh, and and yeah, that that, right. th- that doctors in fact were initially resistant to it, but they were actually going from doctors in the 19th century were basically operating on patients coming directly from doing cadaver studies. Yeah, it, it was it was really is really tragic. So the you know we yeah. didn't have the the germ theory. The germ theory of disease was not really developed until the mid to late 1800s. And so before that, yes, exactly, you'd have people operating. And even worse, you'd have people, uh, obstetricians, delivering babies. And they had literally just come from performing an autopsy on, on a mother, maybe, who had died of a bacterial infection. And then they would go straight from that without any hand washing or, or anything, and they'd go deliver another baby. So they were actually um, spreading you know, bacteria around uh, the, the hospital. There was a, uh, a doctor in, um, I'm trying to remember uh, where, you know, I think it was in Vienna. Um, his name was Semmelweis, and he noticed. So uh, there were actually two wards, the obstetrician's ward, and there was the, uh, the midwife's ward, where they where was only the midwife's delivering. And the midwives had a much lower uh, rate of infection and death. And everyone knew this, uh, but the doctors didn't want to admit that it was something they personally were doing, you know. Uh, even though it wasn't their fault, they didn't know. It wasn't, uh, you know, it was just it was just the ignorance of the time. But they didn't want to admit that it was it could be possibly them spreading around. So they were very resistant um, to the idea. Even when Semmelweis came up with a, you know, with a way of uh, of washing hands with a, I think it was a chlorine, like a bleach solution, uh, uh, you know, that that worked. They, it was it was a hard battle to get people to adopt it. Yeah, uh, it's it's just. Very, it's very interesting. I don't, I don't want to make this just about vaccines and sanitation and so forth. But and and in in your in your uh, first answer to me, uh, Jason Crawford, you actually identified that you're trying to work on something more broadly and sort of thinking about prescriptive things that come out of progress. But so I want to start us before we go to a break. We're going to take a break in a few moments. But I wanted to start us down that road by at the end. One of my one of my email uh, accounts has a signature that is a, from uh, a, includes a quote from Joseph Schumpeter that you might be familiar with. Queen Elizabeth I owned silk stockings. The capitalist achievement does not typically consist of providing more silk stockings for queens, but in bringing them within the reach of factory girls in return for steadily decreasing amounts of effort. To me, that's always been the description of what progress has been. He ascribes it to capitalism in that piece. 
do you what are your thoughts about that uh yeah that's a great quote it's absolutely true by the way um, one of the things I love about progress is that, uh, you know, it tends to take the, the best products and make them into mass manufactured things. And if you think about uh, if you're a billionaire, you know, what smartphone do you use? Uh, you probably use an iPhone, uh, which is the same thing that, you know, hundreds of millions of other people also use. Um, so, uh, you know, yes, I do think that capitalism is, uh, you know, a major cause, if not maybe the, the sole cause of, of progress and prosperity. Um, I think we can sort of look even more broadly at it. Um, you know, obviously, the progress of science itself is crucial uh, to technology and to our material wealth. Um, I think cultural factors like just how we, you know, whether we believe that progress is possible, whether we believe that progress is good. Um, obviously, social in, uh, infrastructure, social infrastructure like education, um, uh, the ability to finance new ventures, although that's really part of capitalism itself. There, there are many, uh, you know, big factors like this. Great. We're visiting with Jason Crawford, Roots of Progress, rootsofprogress.org, his, his blog there. It has a Patreon site there, so so if you're liking what you're hearing here, I want you to help Jason out because uh, he's now a, he's now doing this full-time, and if you want more of these things, you kind of we kind of need to help him along with that. We'll be back right after this. You are listening to The King Banyan Show on Business 1440. Limitless access to business and investment strategy. Listen to Business 1440 with our free app, your smart speaker, or with iHeart, TuneIn, and Radio.com. We live in the Twin Cities and invest worldwide. Guys, waking up over and over to urinate is not okay. But now, you can reduce those nighttime bathroom trips with the ingredients in Super Beta Prostate P3 Advanced. We're talking about less urges to urinate at night less bathroom trips during the day, and better bladder emptying. It's like taking three prostate supplements in one. You can try a full 30-day bottle of P3 Advanced, free. Just pay shipping and handling. No strings attached, no obligations, and no commitments to buy. This is a 30-day supply, absolutely free. Call 1-800-424-7126. Super Beta Prostate is the best-selling brand in major retailers like Walmart. But for this no-strings-attached free bottle, you must call now. Call 1-800-424-7126. Don't miss out on this unprecedented free offer. 1-800-424-7126. 1-800-424-7126. With the cold weather upon us, it's time to look at the bright side of winter for homeowners. Did you know this is the best time of year to get quotes on window replacements? Contractors are very motivated during the slower time of year, and the prices reflect that. It's also the perfect time to examine your windows with a heat gun to see which ones are the worst if you only want to replace a few. I'm Ryan with my three quotes. As you may already know, this is the only free service of its kind. I'll stop by with the heat gun when we measure your windows, and I'll email you competitive installed window quotes from multiple local contractors. Whether you're looking for major brands like Anderson and Marvin or local Minnesota vinyl brands, we'll come up with the best options for your house during our one-hour meeting. Normally, you would need to sit through nine hours of high-pressure dog-and-pony shows to get that many quotes. Let me do the legwork for you since I know where to get the best quality at the best prices. If you decide to move forward, I'll be there to write up the order and do a walkthrough when it's done. And yes, installs are done all winter long. Set up an appointment online at My3Quotes. That's the number three, My3Quotes. Pressure washers, they spray water and get stuff clean. Sometimes it is quite that simple, but oftentimes there's a lot behind the scenes that American Pressure can help you with. What's the right nozzle to make that water spray at the right speed to accomplish cleaning without doing damage? What's the right heat to melt the grease and grime you've got to save on chemical use as well as protect the equipment you're spraying? See what we can do for you at AmericanPressure.com. In an era of fake news and misleading headlines, turn to a leader in accurate reporting, townhall.com. Get caught up with today's top stories, find brilliant commentary from our columnists, and have a laugh with our political cartoons at townhall.com. Welcome back, King Banyan Show, Business 1440. 
651-289-4477, the number to call, but do that after the next break, because right now we are visiting with Jason Crawford, uh, owner-operator uh, of uh, rootsofprogress.org, great blog, and I've just tweeted another story from it, and I think it's when, I think it's the first one of yours I read, Jason, which was the story of the bicycle. And so let me just give you a couple of minutes to sort of take us on a journey of thinking about what does the bicycle teach us about progress? Yeah, sure. So uh, I was wondering at, at one point uh, last summer, why was it that the bicycle was not invented until, you know, roughly the late 1800s? Uh, you know, some inventions of the 1800s, like, say, the telegraph, uh, obviously depended on a, an understanding of some physics, like the science of electricity. But the bicycle is a mechanical invention, so it doesn't seem to obviously depend on some scientific breakthrough. Why couldn't we have had bicycles in, say, you know, the Roman Empire? Um, there were certain, certainly many you know, sophisticated mechanical things long before, like clocks and, and watches. Uh, so I, uh, I started looking into it, and uh, the story of how the bicycle was invented is fascinating. The, the very first prototype of a bicycle at all, uh, was in the very early 1800s, around 1817. But the, that first prototype uh, didn't have pedals. It, was, it had two wheels and a seat, but you kind of had to kick along the ground like a scooter, you know, to get it to go. And it was made out of wood. Uh, with the tires were, uh, had uh, brass bearings and were rimmed with iron. Um, decades later, somebody finally put pedals on the bicycle. But when they put pedals on the bike, they attached them directly to the front wheels. Now, if you ever ridden a bike, you know, you don't actually get a lot of uh, uh, leverage that way. It's like being stuck in first gear. So it's very difficult to, you know, pedal and get very far. And by this point, you know, the bikes were made of maybe uh, cast iron, but they were still very rickety. Uh, and, you know, especially riding over cobblestone streets in those days, it was a very bumpy ride. One of the bicycle models was called the Bone Shaker. That gives you an idea of how bumpy it was. <laughs> So to, uh, to, uh, to solve both of these problems, what happened was they started making the front wheel larger and larger. And so this is where you get the, uh, the kind of ridiculous-looking design that you might associate in your mind with the late 1800s, known as the penny farthing, with a really huge, uh, you know, four- or five-foot, you know, diameter uh, front wheel, and the, the riders perched way up there. Uh, and by this time, they might have been making the, uh, the tires uh, or the, the wheels with uh, solid rubber tires, although they did not yet have um, inflatable rubber. So uh, this large wheel solved two problems. One, it gave you better uh, mechanical advantage, so it wasn't as, you know, as hard to get up to a good speed. And the other is that a larger wheel naturally absorbs shocks better. Uh, so this was fine. The problem, of course, is that it requires a lot of balance to, you know, to perch up there, and it's very dangerous, uh, very easy to fall off. Uh, if, you hit a, you know, if you do hit a bump and, and you went over, you just pitched right over and landed on your head. So not very safe. Um, and so by the late, uh, by mid-1880s, they uh, started inventing and, and marketing something that was, at the time, was marketed as the safety bicycle, to differentiate it from the very dangerous penny farthing, um, where they finally sort of hit on the, the modern bicycle design. The pedals are in the middle. They're not directly attached to either wheel. There's a gear and a chain, and, uh, and that gives you some, you know, different, the, the ability to even maybe switch to different gears. And then um, the tires, by the late 1880s, they had reintroduced the uh, inflatable or pneumatic uh, rubber tire that absorbs shocks better. So it took about 70 years of design iteration to get from the very first uh, bicycle prototype to, uh, you know, to, the, to what we would recognize as the modern bicycle. So I think there's a few lessons here that I drew out of, uh, you know, out of this, or interesting themes at least, and I, that I put these in the blog post. One is just, first, obviously, the correct design was not uh, obvious to people from the beginning. It took experimentation, it took invention. What's obvious to us in retrospect was, was not so clear, you know, to the very first inventors uh, of the bicycle. They had to go through a lot of, of iterations. Another thing is I think you can see how materials and manufacturing technologies were pretty important, right? So that very first um, bicycle, again, made with a wooden frame and iron tires, you know, it wasn't going to be very sturdy. It was very bumpy. Um, even that, by the way, uh, you know, used, as I mentioned, and, and I, I, I didn't put this in the blog post because I only found this out very recently, uh, thanks to Nick Zabo for pointing this out to me on Twitter, that uh, even that very first uh, prototype required uh, brass bearings, which I think, you know, possibly ball bearings had only been invented um, in, the, in the late 1700s. Okay. Um, and then, you know, later bicycles depended on inventions like wire spoke wheels, uh, hollow metal tubes, cheap steel, 
Uh, again, that uh, vulcanized rubber, which wasn't invented until the nineteen, uh, sorry, the eighteen thirties or so. Um, inflatable uh, tires, as I mentioned, precision machining to be able to make the gears and chains. So a lot of that, uh, you know, mechanical and sort of materials and manufacturing technology was was invented, uh, you know, through the course of the eighteen hundreds. And I think that stuff was pretty crucial as well. Uh, but I think you can step back and you can. You know, you can actually ask this invention uh, or this question about many different inventions, many of which are actually much less sophisticated than the bicycle. Uh, in another post on my blog, I asked this question about the cotton gin, which uh, is even more economically important than the bicycle and is, it is actually simpler from a mechanical perspective, but wasn't invented until 1793. You can ask this of the flying shuttle. Uh, which was an, a very simple invention. It's literally just a couple of blocks on a piece of string, but it doubled the productivity of weavers at broadcloth looms in England. Um, and Anton Howes, uh, an economic historian who, whom I like very much, uh, his work, he, he has written about this. And so uh, Anton and I both like to write about these ideas. Uh, uh, econo- uh, economist Alex Tabarrok call these, calls these, quote, ideas behind their time. You know, some ideas are ahead of their time, but these ideas are behind their time. They could theoretically have been invented much earlier. And so I think there's got to be some component of kind of a, um, you know, economic and cultural uh, factors that are affecting this. Economic factors could include, you know, how much surplus do we have to actually allow people to have, you know, some people to have some time and space to, uh, to tinker and invent. It can also affect, is there even a market for this invention, right? The, uh, you know, right. the bicycle, you, you, you can't sell it to a poor, uh, you know, subsistence farmer who doesn't have any spare, uh, you know, cash for, for novelties like that. Uh, there needs to be some sort of a middle class, right, who can kind of form a market for these things. But really, the deepest idea, I think, is just the idea of invention itself, which I think for most of history, most cultures in the world just did not have the idea that we can and should try to find, you know, new and better ways of doing things. Uh, I think that's a relatively new idea, maybe one that we take for granted today, but shouldn't. Uh, and I think that was part of what led to you know, a lot of new inventions in the last few hundred years. Jason, thanks for that. I really appreciate that, appreciate that story. I was reading the, I read the cotton gin piece after I had read, read the bicycle piece. One of the things that struck me about this was the fact that if I think about those, I got interested in this kind of topic way back when uh, David Landis did his book, Revolution in Time, which is a book from the 1980s, talking about the developments of clocks and watches. And the fact that clocks and watches are, unlike unlike the cotton gin or the shuttle, are, are more consumer products. And the bicycle is a consumer product, whereas the cotton gin is something that enhances the productivity. And there's something pretty obvious about, well, if I get this, I'm going to be able to make more money. The bicycle was a matter of, was something that was more of a convenience, uh, just as the watch was, right? It was only the rich that needed to know what time it was. If you worked in the field, you you told the time by the sun and really didn't need to know much. You didn't, you didn't need to know if it was quarter after the hour. You just need to know, just need to know, do I have, you know, two hours of sunlight or four? Um, and so I, 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 one of the things I wanted to take away from that is, is that, that desire to invent has always been there, but but and it's part of it's it's part, it's a human nature, but there's something being harnessed in this in a couple of ways, right? And so we just identified before the break capitalism as one of those possible things that could be harnessing that. You can see that, you can see that in some sense. But what you seem to be focused. I I, I heard you talk about values and premises. And actually, talking a little bit about the virtues that lead to human progress. Um, what do the stories of the cotton gin and the bicycle and these other things uh, teach us about that? Yeah, you know, it's funny. I mean, you say that invention is in human nature, and there's a you know a sense in which that's true, and a sense in which it's not. Um, you know, invention certainly is part of human nature, but it's not common. It's I would say it's uh, it's certainly not automatic. Um, through most it. It requires a, you know, uh, to, to invent requires an idea that you, that you could invent. It requires an idea up front that you could possibly, by experimenting, by looking, by, by tinkering and trying, that you could find something, you know, better than anyone has ever discovered before. And there's a certain amount of hubris <laughs> you need for that, right? You've got to have a certain, uh, 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 a certain sort of confidence that, that you 
you know, one individual out of billions and billions can find something that, you know, better than anyone has ever found before. Now, um, in, a, in a fascinating book that I read at the beginning of this uh, intellectual journey uh, by economic historian uh, Joel Mokir called yeah. A Culture of Growth, you know, yes. he says that um, this idea of, uh, of progress is actually relatively new in, uh, in Western history and in the world. And he contrasts it with this idea of ancestor worship. Ancestor worship is the idea that actually our ancient ancestors were the greatest people who ever lived, that everything, uh, you know, that they sort of discovered and created every great thing that could possibly, you know, be done, and that all knowledge that matters was revealed to them in ancient times, and really all we can do is kind of study their texts, and, um, you know, we can certainly never surpass them. And he details how this sort of, this whole idea very gradually broke down in, uh, in the West, between about Columbus and Newton, sort of in the, uh, you know, 15 and 1600s, uh, beginning with those voyages of discovery where we discovered entire continents that the ancients never knew about, uh, you know, and, and sort of concluding with Newton's uh, uh, theory of uh, physics and of the solar system, which was so clearly an advance on any, you know, prior physical uh, or, or mathematical theory, that uh, it became very clear by that point that, yes, we, the moderns, can, you know, make new progress. And so that's very compelling to me as a fundamental cultural idea, kind of a philosophic idea that you need to have in your head before, you know, most people, except for an extremely rare uh, few, are going to go out there and, and tinker and, you know, even try to invent anything new. So, so uh, let's get, I got one more question and I'm going to, I've got two more questions for you. Uh, the first one, the first one is, is that, is just to sort of go along that way, want to talk about what those what those virtues the values and premises that you see that that lie at these roots of progress um uh i i think so if invention is in fact something that's relatively new to us that had to have come from some other value that came along at the same time and and some of that being uh, that belief that there's something new out there and not worshiping our ancestors but what the i'm not sure i have a handle on what it is then um, yeah, I think what replaced that is the idea of uh, of, of progress itself. Um, in uh, you know, in around England in the um, you know seventeen hundreds ish, give or take a century, uh, there was this word that started to get used a lot, and the word was improvement. And people had this idea that things could be improved, that we could come up with you know better ways of farming, better ways of uh, smelting iron or forging it. Uh, better ways of transporting goods, uh, et cetera, and, and so forth. Uh, you know, even, even better ways of solving mathematical problems. And so there was this, uh, there was this striving for improvement, and that word improvement was on many people's lips. And so I think, you know, again, just the idea that you can go out, I, I think just that, you know, giving, giving the people who do have a little bit of inventive spark, giving them that motivation, uh, giving them that inspiration to go ahead and, you know, go out there and actually try it. Uh, I think that is that is a key cultural idea. And so, you know, when I talk about values and premises, this is, uh, you know, part of what I'm talking about is uh, value, valuing progress, uh, you know, believing that it's possible, being motivated, inspired to go out there and, and give it your effort to find a thing you want to invent, to find a thing you want to improve, and then to actually put the effort into to tinker and to try and to learn and to experiment until you actually find something that works. So, last question you've you've built you built this business field book. You've uh, stepped back from that, and now this is your full time piece. Well, give us a brief description of the business plan. What what is what is Roots of Progress going to? What does Roots of Progress look like in in uh, two years from now? Yeah, sure. Uh, well, my plan right now is to write a book. I am taking you know all the research that I'm doing and all the writing I'm doing for the blog. I'm uh, planning to survey sort of all of the major technologies that make up the modern world and our, and our modern uh, standard of living and uh, summarize that history um, in a book. So uh, hoping by the end of the year to have a book proposal and maybe, uh, maybe shop it around, get a book deal. Uh, there are, that's, uh, that's kind of the, the, the main way I'm, I'm thinking of taking this and, and from there hope to build a, a, you know, a broader intellectual career of writing and speaking. Um, there are other ways it could go, but that's kind of my default path for now. Well, that's just sound, that sounds amazing. I I would love to get you up here to, to speak someplace sometime up here in Minnesota. We would love to have you here. I want to thank you for the time. I hope you won't be a stranger that we can invite you back to talk again sometime soon as, as we see more places in which uh, progress studies are advancing. Thank you so much for your time today, Jason. 
Absolutely great conversation. Thanks for having me. Thank you, and we'll be back after this. You're listening to The King Banyan Show on Business 1440. Sebastian Gorka here for Relief Factor, the 100% drug-free supplement that was formulated by doctors to help your body deal with inflammation and pain. The reason I've told so many of my friends about the three-week quick start is because as we get older, occasional aches and pains can be a real problem, keeping you from sleeping through the night or doing the things you love and need to do, like taking walks or playing golf, going up or downstairs, or simply playing with your kids or grandkids. Tens of thousands are now like me, glad they ordered the three-week quick start for just nineteen ninety-five. After years of back pain, I found relief, and I believe you could too. Folks, this is why the father and son owners of Relief Factor, Pete and Seth Talbot, created the three-week quick start, and they discounted it to only nineteen ninety-five. Approximately 70% of those who order it go on to order more. Let's see if we can get you out of pain too. Go to relieffactor.com, relieffactor.com, or call 800-500-8384. Limitless access to business and investment strategy. Listen to Business 1440 with our free app, your smart speaker, or with iHeart, TuneIn, and Radio.com. We live in the Twin Cities and invest worldwide. I'm Staff Sergeant Mark Anthony Madrid. Staff Sergeant Samantha Cowell. I'm Staff Sergeant Alex I'm Staff Sergeant William Lewis, and I am proud to defend my family and our nation. The Air Force Reserve is part of the story of this great nation. I'm grateful that I have a chance to wear the uniform of the heroes that went before me. I'm proud to be part of a team that helps make a difference in the world. Every day, men and women from communities across this nation serve as reserve citizen airmen. Even as technology evolves and changes, our commitment to defend and protect this nation remains steadfast. We celebrate those who have served and those who are proudly serving. We celebrate our proud history and look towards an exciting and uniting future. Our mission is to fly, fight, and win in air, space, and cyberspace. And I am proud to be a member. And I'm proud to serve in the United States. And I am proud to protect our country. Proud to serve in the U.S. Air Force Reserve. AFreserve.com. If you could build the world's greatest radio station, where would you start? We'd begin by creating a live station that's able to provide breaking news updates. Then we'd install some of today's top political voices behind the mic. Finally, we'd craft a convenient way to listen with a specialized mobile app. No, it's not a work in progress. It's on the air now. AM 1280, The Patriot. Intelligent radio. Online at am1280thepatriot.com. Business 1440 and iHeartRadio. They go together like pennies and pinching. Listen anytime, anywhere at iHeart.com or with the free iHeartRadio mobile app. You cheated, you lied, you said that you love me, you cheated, you lied, you said that you want me. Oh, Oh, please, let's not have that refer to our guest that just left, Jason Crawford. Great job today. Uh, great job today. I'm going to have more people who come on and talk about progress studies over the next year or so. I'm fascinated by this topic. For me, it's always been the case of the uh, what I what I call the real hockey stick. Uh, we hear the hockey stick about uh, about uh, global temperatures and so forth. And I'm not I'm not denying that that data. I'm not. This isn't about global climate change in any way, shape, or form. But the hockey stick that fascinates me more than that one is the hockey stick of where we pretty much live all at a subsistence level until sometime in the early 18th century. And then everything takes off. And it's spread and grown in the additional billion people who have joined the middle class, mostly, chiefly from Asia, over the last over the last 25 to 30 years. Regardless of, Don, I hear you about the data, but, but regardless of what one thinks of the data, I don't think the I think if you've been to if you've been to Asia in the 1990s and you've been to Asia in the last few years and I've done both I've traveled there several times 
There's no question to me that there is a vastly growing middle class, and that vastly growing middle class demands goods. The bicycle is, the reason I focused on the bicycle is the bicycle is an example of when a product was produced with the intention of helping consumers with things. And that really didn't come till the 1870s or 1880s. All those earlier inventions, you can find very, very few examples of inventions meant to make life easier at home for people or to allow them to travel. Yeah, the train trains became came into existence. But trains wouldn't have existed if it wasn't for the fact that they could move product. Bicycles don't move product, even though in Asia I would see people on a bicycle taking things to the market and, and the stack of things that they would be able to balance on the bicycle were amazing. Um, but what led to that? And it's not just that we became more curious in my mind. It also became that there was a middle class and that people could think about improvement. I agree 100% with Jason with that. But it also involves the ability for us to have to have transactions with strangers. Okay? As uh, Adam Smith observed in The Wealth of Nations so many years ago, our ability to truck, you know, okay, our wealth depends on the circle of people with whom we can trade. And as we go from the kin network to our community and from the community to globalization, that begins to rely on a number of institutions, surely, but it also relies on trust. And that something happened in the 19th century that caused me to be more like the person who trusts the stranger, which every time it happened, when you see it happen in, in, um, in religious texts, such as the Bible or, 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 or the Quran or anything, when you see someone investing you know, and sacrificing for a stranger, it's like, it's like an oh-my-gosh experience. It's it, it you know it has that you know Hindu there are Hindu texts that talk about finding finding someone sick and dying along a river and helping them. That's there and it becomes it's but it's more than just sympathy for your neighbor. It becomes an ability to trust. And I think the untold story of the roots of progress is in fact that trust factor. And how do we trust one another? As an example of that, another story that kind of exploded this week, and I normally don't do sports stories, but I want to talk about this in the, in, in the element of trust, is this story about the Houston Astros. And I will say, because if you're a longtime listener of the King Banging Show, you know that I'm a Boston Red Sox fan, and there are accusations that the Red Sox have been involved in cheating. I'm not ignoring them. Those are out there. They haven't been determined by by. Major League Baseball and the commissioner's office yet. We can have that conversation a different day. But this this week, I want to talk about the fact that the Astros came out this week to try to move past their cheating. Now, there are elements of the story that I found really interesting I didn't understand very well. I love baseball. I've played fantasy baseball for over 30 years. Uh, I am I am I'm addicted to watching games. I subscribe to Major League MLB League Pass so I can watch games all evening. Um, but I don't understand some of the things that were talked about in this piece. Wyatt, our producer, actually plays baseball on a college team. He's both a pitcher and second base? Yep, Somewhere that's in correct. Okay, thanks, Wyatt. Okay, so he has things he could talk about about this, and he's also, as you might guess, since he plays the game, he's a fan of the game, too. And both of us had somewhat similar reactions to a press conference that happened. So, Wyatt, I'm going to turn it over to you a little bit to talk about what happened at this press conference and and your reaction to it. Yeah, uh, so essentially, like you said, the Astros are trying to uh, put this behind them, move forward with the 2020 season, and they figured why not have a press conference, get everything out there, and just move on from it. The problem was they didn't really say anything. They had Jose Altuve and Alex Bregman come up onto the stand, they said some brief comments about what happened, didn't really go into detail about it, and then said they were just looking forward to the upcoming season. Their owner, Jim Crane, I'm going to play this clip right now, essentially contradicted himself uh, 30 seconds later after saying a comment. So listen to this clip, and then we can talk about it. 
you know, our opinion is, uh, you know, that this didn't impact the game. Um, we had a good team. Um, we won the World Series, and we'll leave it at that. Did you say you feel like this didn't impact the game? And what do you mean by that? I, I didn't say it didn't impact the game. Isn't that what he said, King? That's what it sounded like to me. I think he said he said it didn't impact the game. I, yeah, I, I have. This is this is someone who's basically. It sounds to me like he's trying to have it both ways. Yeah, they can't get their story straight. There, there's so much going on in that organization right now. Uh, it's truly remarkable and incredible. And like you said, nobody wants to take ownership of what happened. So yeah, it, I, it, it's disappointing. Yeah, I agree. I agree. It, it, it is disappointing. And, and and it's clear that people are not buying this, right? People oh, are yeah. Not, people are not buying this. Uh, so a number of quotes that have come out over the last few, uh, uh, over the last 24 hours uh, have made it very clear that um, they, they th- what they basically want to do is, was they wanted to come forward. So 10 players from the 2017 World Series team, World Series, the, I'm, I'm going to call them the World Series team. I'm not going to call them the champions because <laughs> I'm a little ticked off. Yep. Uh, I'm a little ticked off about this. So I'm not calling them champions. But what I would say is if the, you know, they tried to come forward and say, okay, we need to draw close on this, we need to address it, and we need to move on. Right. Yep. So, how did they? But but by, by the way, is that Jack Bauer calling you? Uh, but, <laughs> okay. Uh, you know, it, you know that's um, that's a uh, uh, they try to do this, but it it, it doesn't seem to be working. Why don't you give them this next example from uh, from Cody Bellinger? Yeah, here's uh, what Cody Bellinger had to say about the whole uh, issue. Uh, you know, I thought the apologies were whatever. Uh, I thought Jim Cranes was weak. Um, I thought Manfred's punishment was weak, giving him immunity. Um, I mean, these guys were cheating for three years. Um, you know, I think what people don't realize is Altuve stole an MVP from Judge in 17. Yeah. So so you reacted very strongly to this point, uh, uh, Wyatt. I did. Uh- I, I yeah. think everybody realizes, he goes on to say later in this clip, I didn't uh, keep it, but everybody knows how the Astros took the ring from the Dodgers. There's so much more that goes beyond this, though. Like he said, Aaron Judge probably should have been the MVP. It shouldn't have been Jose Altuve. There's numerous amounts of pitchers that have pitched against the Houston Astros, and they no longer are in the MLB. They got sent back down to AAA or A because they got rocked when the Astros were cheating against them. So it just changes the outcome for some people. This goes way beyond just impacting uh, one team. This, this impacts everybody that's involved with baseball that ever had to go up against them when they were cheating. So it's a much bigger level, and I would agree with Bellinger. I would say the punishment was weak, and the apologies were very weak indeed. All right, so I'm going to say we take a break here. When we come back, I've got a couple questions regarding this. First of all, just be sure everybody understands what the story is. Apparently, the the there was a scheme by which you could you could uh, know the pitch that was coming, the Astros could, and they were signaling to the batter in the box which what kind of pitch was coming by banging on a trash can or mm-hmm. right. Yep. And and I want to ask him a couple questions because. We need the viewpoint of someone who plays the game, and because Wyatt is both a pitcher and a hitter, and if he's playing second base on the days he's not pitching, it must mean they want his bat in the game even when he's not pitching. He must be okay at that. He can give us some idea of what uh, he he can give us some idea of w- of what these things mean. And we're going to talk about those things right after this. You're listening to the King Banyan Show on Business 1440. You cheated. You lied. You said that you love me. You- Business 1440 is KYCR Golden Valley. What would you do if you knew the skills that could help you make the right moves inside the financial markets? Skills designed to help you generate income and build confidence towards your retirement. For more than 20 years, Online Trading Academy has taught thousands just like you how to make better investing decisions. Attend a free investing class near you. Call now, 952-814-4410 or go to learnwithota.com. Learnwithota.com. 
Looking for future leaders we can trust and believe in? Look no further than the high school student-athletes right here in Minnesota. High school sports teach young people how to be effective leaders. It begins by making their grades and being on time for practice. It includes learning to listen, following directions, accepting responsibility, being a good role model. And it's about respect for officials, opponents, the rules, and each other. The result? It transcends sports. It gives us hope for the future. High school sports. There's so much more than just a game. This message presented by the Minnesota State High School League and the Minnesota Interscholastic Athletic Administrators Association. Pro-Life Across America is celebrating its 30th year of saving babies. That's right. Hello, my name is Marianne Koharski. I'm the director of Pro-Life Across America. We began three decades ago, and thanks to our supporters, we now have billboards, radio ads, and internet ads across the country. So what have we learned in these 30 years? No woman wants an abortion. Most feel panic, pressure, and alone. Our hotline receives an average of 200 to 250 calls a month. We connect callers with free, confidential, and life-affirming assistance. Please help continue this legacy of support or post-abortion assistance. Visit us at ProLifeAcrossAmerica.org. Or to donate today, simply press pound 250 on your cell phone and say the key words, Pro-Life, Pro-Life Across America, non-political and totally educational. Pro-Life Across America, the When it comes to replacing your windows and doors, ignorance is not bliss. You only want to have to do it once, and you don't want to make a mistake. Great Plains Windows and Doors has been helping homeowners all over the Twin Cities with their replacement needs, utilizing the entire line of Anderson Core product, including the most popular 400 series, which contractors trust the most, and they're made right here in Minnesota. Now that sounds like bliss. For a truly remarkable experience, contact Great Plains Windows and Doors at greatplainswindows.com. Welcome back, King Banyan Show, Business 1440. Again, we're not a sports show normally here. We're business and finance, but I have a broader point to make about this thing with the Astros. I still need to ask a couple questions, though. We had one more clip, and it's about the nature of an apology. And this is Doug Glanville, a former player, um, and now a commentator... Is he on Fox or ESPN? I can't remember. This clip came from ESPN. I think he does a little bit of work for Fox as well, though. Okay. Okay. So this is Doug Glanville commenting on, on the apologies given yesterday or Thursday. Players, what was your reaction from what Bregman and Altuve said? I didn't hear anything. I mean, they, they didn't say anything. They, they basically said what happened. So what did happen? When you, when you use the word happen, it sounds like an accident. It doesn't sound like intent. He's 100% right. He, he is 100% right. So I need to ask you two questions. We only have a few minutes left. Yep. First of all, Wyatt, I've asked this question. I'm going to ask you as well. There are accusations that not only did they have the banging trash cans, but that uh, some players, especially Jose Altuve, had a buzzer somewhere on his body when he mm-hmm. was up to bat, and the buzzer could tell him whether he was getting a fastball or an off-speed pitch. First of all, is that po- – how do – is it is, – uh, let's assume that's possible. Yep. Okay. What a? What's the advantage? And b? What's the advantage that you get from that? And then, as, as a player, you talk about that. And then, and then b? What happened uh, that makes us think he may have had a buzzer? Yeah. So as far as uh, the buzzer goes, sometimes you got to take it to the next level, even when it comes to cheating. And uh, in a game like that, where it was as loud as it was, the garbage cans probably weren't necessarily the best option. So. Why not have a buzzer that's going to alert you to let you know what pitch is coming in? I, If I was a hitter and I know what pitch is coming in, the chances of getting on base are increased so much. I know some people might say, 
it psychs them out or even messes with their mind more so than being in the box. But when you're facing a Roldis Chapman who's pumping 100 consistently and throwing sliders at 90 miles per hour, you need to know what pitch is coming. So it absolutely gives Altuve a benefit. There's no doubt in my mind I believe he had one on him because when he gets to home plate, it's very clear he doesn't want his teammates to rip his jersey off. His excuse for not wanting his teammates to rip his jersey off was that his wife gave him a hard time the last time it happened. I mean, come up with something a little bit better than that if that's the case. Nobody's going to believe that. And there's just no doubt in my mind that the Astros, if they were willing to cheat by using garbage cans, why would they not be willing to cheat by using buzzers? Right. Okay, so here's the other. And I'll, I'm going to leave that because we haven't got time. But i got to ask you one more question, though. You, you pitch sometimes. Yep. I don't, I'm willing to bet that, that you probably have never been asked by a manager to throw at a hitter. I have not. Okay. If you're pitching for the Yankees, who clearly have, who feel wronged by what happened, as well as the Dodgers, and the manager comes out of the dugout as Altuve comes to the plate and says, says throw one under his chin. Okay. Um, do you? <sighs> More you than know, likely, pl- yes. Yeah, and, and, and you know other players would be like, I have no problem with that. You don't even mm-hmm. have to come out of the dugout. I got this. Right. Yeah, I, I that and, is a and, part and, of baseball. Yeah, and let me give you the one more piece, which is which is if you're Altuve, right? If you're Altuve, you know that that conversation is happening, not just with yep. the Yankees, but with oh, yeah. every team in the league, mm-hmm. right? So isn't this all about, in fact, trying to calm it down? Because Dusty Baker this morning, their ma- new manager, because they fired the old one, yep. has come out and said basically, okay, MLB has to step in and protect us from people retaliating. Yeah, but at the same time, you deserved a, a better punishment than the one you got. So what's right. the MLB supposed to do? If I'm Altuve, this is how you approach it. You more than likely know they're going to be throwing at you. You can't play the game scared if you want to succeed. You're just going to have to stand in there and take it. You still have time, depending on how fast the pitch is, to react and avoid getting hit as far as like in the head. You're probably going to get some bruises on your body. If I'm an MLB team, that's the way I'm approaching it. I don't have an issue throwing at them. If MLB's not going to step up and punish them for what they did, maybe you got to take it into your own hands a little bit. Nothing too severe, but they absolutely will be thrown at. And I wouldn't have an issue doing it myself either, but maybe that's just me, I guess. Yeah, Yeah. well, my answer, my answer is that, that this violation of trust is going to make – it makes the game worse. And somehow letting the players solve it for themselves sounds fine, but if you really wanted to apologize, give the trophy back. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. Give the trophy back, yep. right? Yep. That, let's get, or give it to the Dodgers or whoever whoever was else in the World Series that year. Mm-hmm. I can't remember. But at, at any rate, that's how we handle it. Hey, we're out of time for today. Thank you so much for everybody for listening. Thanks again to Jason Crawford. We'll be back next week. King Banyan Show, Business 1440. Guys, waking up over and over to urinate is not okay. But now you can reduce those nighttime bathroom trips. With the ingredients in Super Beta Prostate P3 Advanced. We're talking about less urges to urinate at night, less bathroom trips during the day, and better bladder emptying. It's like taking three prostate supplements in one. You can try a full 30-day bottle of P3 Advanced. Free. Just pay shipping and handling. No strings attached, no obligations, and no commitments to buy. This is a 30-day supply. Absolutely free. Call 1-800-459-3174. Superbeta Prostate is the best-selling brand in major retailers like Walmart. But for this no-strings-attached free bottle, you must call now. Call 1-800-459-3174. Don't miss out on this unprecedented free offer. Call 1-800-459-3174. 1-800-459-3174. If you are experiencing hair loss, let this be the year to make a new hairs resolution. I'd like to introduce you to the only permanent solution to hair loss. I need more hair.com. Hi, I'm Mike Greenlee, familiar voice with Minnesota hockey fans. If you have hair loss and want more hair, go to I need more hair.com. You will find some of the most experienced hair transplant specialists in Minnesota. Their doctors have given patients from around the world, including some of the most prominent celebrities, a full head of hair, and they can do the same for you. Here's the best part. Their technique is so advanced. The results are guaranteed in writing and their prices are the best in the business. Prices as low as $3 per graft. 
Their office is conveniently located in Egan. INeedMoreHair.com will allow you to see a more confident reflection of yourself. That's INeedMoreHair.com. The consultations are free, and the results are amazing. Check out INeedMoreHair.com for complete details. That's INeedMoreHair.com. Experience you can trust, prices you can afford. Let this be the year to make a new hair's resolution. Check out INeedMoreHair.com. Hi, this is PJ from PJ's Appliance Outlet, your local, family-owned, and operated appliance store. No matter where you live in the Twin Cities, PJ's is worth the drive. We're centrally located in Plymouth. Just this past month, we've had satisfied customers from Maple Grove, St. Paul, Minneapolis, Eden Prairie, Bloomington, all over the Twin Cities. We take great pride in separating ourselves from those overpriced big box stores by simply providing over-the-top customer service, great quality products at unbeatable prices. PJ's has quickly become the trusted go-to store for brand new scratch and dent appliances. You can save hundreds, sometimes thousands of dollars on brand new warrantied name brand refrigerators, ovens, washers and dryers, dishwashers and freezers, top brands like LG, Frigidaire and much more. Come visit our showroom today and ask for PJ, Bob or Jake or visit our website at PJsApplianceOutlet.com. That's PJsApplianceOutlet.com where every deal is a steal. 